we now learn about our enemy, who he is, and his tactics. We ask you, Lord, to guard and guide us for your name's sake. Amen. So two Sundays back, we were introduced to the God of 1 Peter. We noticed that as Peter concludes his letter, he wants his readers to stand firm in the true grace of God. Therefore, he reminds them time and again about their God. He reminds them of a rock Um, like security that they have in him. That God is a solid rock to all those who put their trust in him. Again, two Sundays ago, we were introduced to the nature of this God, which we learn about here in 1 Peter, who God is, so that we may know him and put our trust in him. That's what Psalm 78 says, that they may know you, God, and put their hope in you. That's the whole aim, that's the whole goal of learning about God. It's not an academic exercise, it's not a herd knowledge, but it's for us, it's to warm our hearts and and help us to turn to him in worship. So we look at that nature of God under two sub-headings two Sundays ago, God's mighty hand, and we learned that it is under God's mighty hand which we are to humble ourselves, under his mighty hand that we are to humble ourselves. We learned that it is the hand that delivers and exalts his children, whilst at the same time, it is the hands that hand that humbles the proud and judges God's enemy. And therefore, we are safe when we are under that hand. We don't want to be in opposition to that hand. Secondly, we looked at God's caring heart. Again, we noticed that it is a thrilling privilege. That as we come to pray, we pray to a God who cares about us. When you come to God in prayer on your knees, remember that. That you're coming to pray to somebody who cares about you. He's delighted to hear from you. Therefore, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. And the key word there, as we think about casting our anxieties on him, is because he cares about us. It's the same word that was used by disciples when they faced the storm in the sea. They said, Lord, don't you care? So God's mighty hand, God's caring heart, and this morning, God's devouring enemy. That's where we're going to be this morning, there in verses 8 and 9, God's devouring enemy. And we're going to look at that one, again, under two subheadings. You'll be glad to know that I haven't made them up myself. They are part of those two verses. Verse 8, we have an enemy. 
All of us, if we are Christ followers, that's the condition. If you are a Christian, you have an enemy. And Peter doesn't want us to be ignorant of this. He wants us to know this truth, this biblical truth about the fact that we have an enemy. But Peter is not going to end there in informing us about this enemy. But he wants this information to equip us so that we know what to do with our enemy. So on the one hand, we have an enemy. On the other, we are to stand against our enemy. Resist him. Those are the two themes we're going to look at this morning. Let's begin. We have an enemy. Verses 8. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil. Remember I said God's devouring enemy, but Peter wants to add to that. He's not just God's enemy. If you are a Christian, he is your enemy too. Your adversary, the devil. A couple of years ago, I used to receive ministry updates from a, friend, from a missionary friend of mine based in UK. Now, in one of these updates, ministry updates, she narrates a story of that from regularly she receives Christian newspapers on her post. And at the back of these newspapers, there is a, a best-selling list from different Christian bookshops around the country. And now she noticed or she pointed out that for two consecutive years, one book dominated the top ten list of bestsellers book. And the book is called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. It's a Christian novel, and it's all about the powers of evil. And this is what my friend says about it. It's rather medieval in its theology. But it's a good reminder that there is a spiritual battle going on. She goes on to say, some, some people need no reminding of that. They have demons in every corner. And he is to be blamed for everything. But others of us do need constant reminding that we are in a spiritual battle. I thought those words are wise. They are balanced. It's both. We need the reminder, but some of us have taken this reminder to extreme, where for every problem that happens in their lives, it's the demons. But again, we need to be balanced. There is a spiritual battle going on. It's not just, it's not just a matter of us gritting our teeth doing our best for God, and that is a great distortion of the gospel because we are not doing the grace, the great for the gospel. But God has given us power. We have an enemy. He is an adversary. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Therefore, Peter says, be sober. Now, the command to be sober is not a reference to alcohol. It's actually got nothing to do with it. 
but it's about us keeping a clear mind. Apparently, when you're drunk, it's impossible to keep a clear mind. I'm not going to develop that statement. I'm just going to leave it as it is. But Peter wants us to keep a clear mind. By the way, alcohol is not the only thing in the scriptures that get people drunk. Pride and arrogance and being full of oneself, can, people can be drunk of it as well. So we are to keep a clear mind. Peter is saying, do not get carried away. Be watchful. Keep alert. The fact that God cares about you, it doesn't mean to drive us into carelessness. We have an enemy. He's an adversary and he's prowling around. We are to be what Peter same writer that we're reading, we're learning about, was not when he denied Jesus. You remember him saying to Jesus, I would rather go to my death instead of denying you, Lord, and immediately he was warned. Jesus said to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Don't you think every time the rooster crows, Peter would remember that incident and he would be on his guard. He would be alert because he knows what happened. He was not on his guard. Do you remember another incident when Jesus and his disciples, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane? It's a garden of pain, the garden of agony. And Jesus comes with his disciples. He said to them, wait here while I pray. He takes Peter, James, and John. He goes aside with them. He said to them, watch with me while I pray. He disappears and prays. He comes back. He finds them asleep. He says, couldn't you watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. That's something extraordinary there. You would think he would say, watch and pray so that I don't get into temptation. No. Watch and pray that you may not get into temptation. He goes. He comes back. He finds them sleeping. Third time he comes back, he finds them sleeping again. And later on, he sums up that incident. He said, Peter, devil would have you, or certain, Satan would have you and sift you like a wheat. There was a spiritual battle going on in that garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Now Peter comes here later on giving us these personal allusions. He tells us that to keep on your guard, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. That is not a subtle picture of the devil. It's not something that suddenly you realize that I'm surrounded by the enemy. No, it's clear, it's evident. You can see it miles away. It's a roaring lion. 
Because often when something is very evident and clear, it's easy to think it's not so deadly. But in this case, as much as it's his tactics are evident and clear, he is equally deadly as well. Be watchful. We know what the lion does when he sees the heads of bucks, whatever they are. He wants to drive one away from the crowd so that he devours him away from the protection of the community. That's what the enemy does here. He is roaring. He wants Christians to be afraid that they deny Jesus. That's what I take him when he says he wants to devour you. He is an adversary. That word is a legal term. It's the term that is used of a rivalry or an accuser in the lawsuit. The other word I, I, I found is the informer. That's what the enemy is. And throughout the scriptures, devil is depicted as an, as an accuser or the slander. He specializes on this one. Please don't get me wrong. I don't claim to have a special knowledge of him. But I know at least what the scripture says about him. I just want to put that out there that I didn't come and claim to have a special knowledge of devil. But if you read the scripture, you will know that he specializes on the business of accusing. He is the slander. Let's think about that for a moment. He slanders God to man. Remember that in Genesis chapter 3 when he came in the form of a serpent and he had this conversation with Eve. Conversation with Eve. I don't know how long it lasted. Uh, but I know that Larry Grab wrote a book around this conversation that the enemy had with Eve. The book is called The Silence of Adam. Uh, Larry Grab is asking, but where was Adam when Eve was having a conversation with a snake. And he goes on to say, it, it feels like he was close by because when Eve had bitten on the fruit, he passed it on, suggesting that he is not far from her. But he was silent all that time, even though he was the one who was given the command. But in that conversation, the, the devil twisted everything God had said to them. No, you will not die. God is not going to do that, cannot do that to you guys. And technically he was saying, God lies. So he accused God to man. And he continues doing that. This week in our life group, I was helped by Karen Landman to actually continue with this application. She was sharing with us a story that she heard on the radio when somebody said, I believe God can do everything for everyone who asks, but I just don't know if he can do it for me. I believe he can do anything, anything that we ask, but I don't believe he can do it for me. And that slander and that accusation to God continues where people believe that God, I'm not, I'm not his favorite. There is something God is holding 
is withholding from me. You remember Psalm 50, where it says, God owns cattle, kettles in thousand hills. A friend of mine often said, just give us one, Lord. <laughs> not, not, not many of them, just, just one. And I'm sure you, you, you do that as well and say, Lord, I'm just asking for one. And that verse is not necessarily mean go out and count how many thousand hills and then say, those are hills that God owns. No, it means everything in the universe belongs to God. The hill itself. But often, we wonder why God wouldn't give me one, just one of those kettles. And then that accusation that God is withholding something from you becomes personal and real. He slanders God to man, but he slanders man to God. Revelations 12, 9 to 11. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Here is the 24-hour service of devil, accusing Christians to God. 24 hours. 24 hours, that's what the devil does. Day and night, he can't wait to go to the Father and say, did, did you say you die for him too? Did you see what he's just done? When are you going to give up on this particular person? And we're delighted that Jesus stands or sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. From time to time, I used to meet with the staff and I would say to, 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 to whoever that person there is an issue with, I would say, if I fight with you behind the closed doors, I will also fight for you when you are not represented. If we deal with this issue, it's, it's, it's not necessarily mean we are enemies, but we need to deal with the issue so that when somebody else comes and accuse you, I say, I know about it. You realize how powerless it becomes when somebody comes to you with a gossip and say, did you know? And you say, we have spoken about it. They often walk away, I'm not going to say, feeling like what? Imagine now when the enemy goes and accuses you to your father. He says, I was there. I saw it. And he's mine. He accuses God to man. He accuses man to God. He accuses man to man. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. As we read it through, we notice Peter is urging his readers to do right 
and live right so that they silence the, accu- the false accusation that would be raised against them. There are false accusations that the children of God are facing constantly. Maintain a good conduct among the, among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 12, verses 15. It's God's will that by doing right, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Chapter 3, verses 16. And keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And on and on and on, Peter is urging the readers, his readers, to live right in light of the watching world because there is an accuser. Sorry, I know why it's causing this. It's this thing. Okay. Are you okay? Cool. Yet at the same time, even if we do right, the enemy is not going to stop slandering and accusing us. So the question we need, we need to ask ourselves when we find in those confrontations where people are speaking things and true things around us, about us, we need to ask who is the enemy behind these enemies? Who is this big enemy behind the plural enemies? Because often we get hung up on people because we can see them and we can feel what they say about us. It hurts. But let's remember, Peter wants us to know that the devil is behind it all. He is your accuser. These are his tactics. If he can't give you a bad name because of doing wrong, he will give you a bad name even if you're doing right. He will give you insults. He will heap upon you injustices upon injustice. He will twist the things that you've said to suit his agenda, especially in the age of social media where you get judged without knowing the context of what you are saying and from which context you are saying it. You just take the line and you make a judgment on that person. And that person is not there to defend and explain where they were coming from. He will fabricate misunderstanding so that at the end we will surrender and give up and be devoured. So that's your enemy. He slanders, he prowls around like a roaring lion. To intimidate you, he devours. Peter wants us to know that because we are wise when we know that. And it is our folly to to underestimate it. Now, one of my favorite biblical characters are the psalmists. They're not ignorant or naive about the fact that being a person of faith is not does not necessarily mean life is going to be a smooth sailing. 
that you're going to have a trouble-free life because you are a Christ follower. No, they're very much aware of the constant presence of the enemy in this world. They're not shy to talk about their enemy. And they're not shy to voice out their feelings about what they would like to see happening to their enemy. That's what the psalmist did. And often they liken their enemies to lions lying in ambush and waiting to pounce and roaring in their pride. So what are we going to do with our enemy? Well, Peter tells us that we are to resist him. We are to stand against him. Resist him. There are other forms of evil that we can avoid by fleeing. Where we are told over and over in the New Testament, flee, run away. Do not even wait to see how close can he get. Once you sense that there is evil here, walk away, run away. But seemingly, Satan we have to stand against him. We have to resist him. What does this mean? It means this kind of testing is not there to destroy you, but it's there to purify you. Therefore, Peter tells us, resist him firm in your faith. We, we, we cannot resist him by, in our own strength, we resist him by drawing near to God. That's how we resist him. So on the one hand, there is evil that we can run away from. But this kind of evil, we are to stand against. Peter is not worried that we are weak and powerless before our enemy. We've got the armor of God. It's given to us. It's ours. But Peter is worried that we may not resist him. We may allow evil to have reign because we're tired of fighting some battles. We're tired of being the voices in our circumstances. We're tired of being the ones who always see things differently. So we want to be acceptable as well and therefore we keep quiet. And in doing that, we allow the evil and the enemy to have a reign in that particular circumstance. So Peter is not worried that we may not, we, we, we are weak before him. And often it's, a, it's an easy thing to do, to give up for peace's sake and to let go. But when we do that, we're allowing evil to have a full reign. We crumble because that's exactly what the enemy does. It's there to scare us so that we walk away from the things that we, we shouldn't be walking away from. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay. You're not the only one going through what you're going through. That's what Peter says here. That's another strategy of the enemy to make you wallow in self-pity and to withdraw because you feel that I'm the only one. No, you're not. 
your brothers throughout the world, they're going through what you've got. It's a common lot for all those who are Christ followers. I read an article written by the director of the Bible Society based in Lebanon. He writes this article, it's a moving article, he writes this article at the dangerous time where Christians are facing a lot of attacks and accusations on them. And, and, and all the mission, missionary agencies in, in Lebanon. So he writes it to communicate to other Christians around. But I just took a paragraph from it where he says, we have decided to stay here. We have decided that we are going to suffer along with the churches. If we're to pull out, how will the people get the Bibles? What will the churches think? And then he says, I gave the staff an opportunity to leave, but they didn't want to leave. I believe we are in the midst of spiritual war. This is not the war of Muslims against Christians or Christians against Muslims. It's a spiritual war. But these are the words that captured my attention. The vacuum created by our leaving will only be filled by evil. So we must resist the devil and stay. If we leave, that vacuum we left, something is going to fill it. And it's not going to be a godly replacement. It's going to be evil. We are not going. We're going to suffer along with the churches. I don't know about you, but that was a huge rebuke for me. When I compare things that gets me upset and make me to question God in comparison to what these believers are going through, it made me realize that they are small in comparison. So let's not forget that God's devouring enemy who is prowling around be watchful and resist him. And as we end our time, we turn our hearts to the Lord's table. And it's fitting well, because as we look at it, we see all the promises Jesus made. He is on his way to the cross. He's telling his disciples that I'm leaving you. And they are saddened by this. The atmosphere in the upper room is tense, is uncertain. They worry it. And there's different names for it. Others call it the Lord's table. Others call, others call it the Lord's supper. Whichever one we use, what we need to remember is that this is how Jesus decided to spend his last day or his last evening with his disciples by inviting them to sit around the table. And when we read the Gospels, especially the parables of Jesus, they liken heaven to this great banquet, to the great wedding feast where we will sit around with our Lord. William Willimon wrote a book called, Thank God It's Thursday, and is celebrating the Lord's Supper. 
thank God for this gift that he left us with. Oh, another friend of mine calls it, when we sit around the Lord's table, we are like people looking at the old family album. It brings back memories. That's what we're going to do. Of course, we're not sitting around it because it's too small to fit all of us. But in our minds, that's what we remember Jesus doing. Sitting around the table with his disciples. Breaking the bread and pouring the wine. And saying, do this in remembrance of me. It's easy to take this for granted. But in it lies great promises. It's easy to take it for granted. But in it lies what Christ did for you and I. That biscuit which we bought at Spa and that lemon juice or whatever it is we bought, they just what they are. We bought them at Spa. But, but they are deeper than that. Did I say lemon juice? <laughs> whatever it is, you know what it is. They symbolize what Christ has done for us. And we celebrate that with gratitude. Let's pray. But Jesus, we, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the reminder that greater is he who is in us 